CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And for the record, I love puppies. That's correct. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 in District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Friday, May 8th, 2020. The brown line is roaring by. Yes, indeed. We're still in the attic, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be in the attic for at least another month, probably longer than that. Um, as I always do with uh, bonus time, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. This particular distinguished guest is uh, no stranger to the Ben Jarofsky Show and is very popular in these bonus features, as I'm discovering. He's probably going to ask for a raise. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Uh, very great to be here. Uh, my name is Miles Camp Lavin. I am a web editor at Indie Times Magazine. Also a frequent guest uh, on the Ben Jarofsky show, which I'm uh, very happy about. And I, uh, you know, write intermittently at different publications, including in these times. Um, some others, also a lifelong Chicago Bulls fan, which uh, we might get into at one point. Um, but yeah, very happy to be here. Yes, Miles, it's requirement now, uh, now that the, the last dance is playing. All guests who are capable of holding such a discussion are required uh, to have a Bulls discussion at the end of our regular conversation. Ramana Hussein, I just had a Bulls conversation with her. I just want to say this. Stacey Davis-Gates, uh, the, the Vice President of Chicago Teachers Union, I did the deep dive on the Bulls with her. I urge everybody, not now, later, check that one out because you'll see a side of Stacey you may not know. Huge basketball fan. Uh, knows her Bulls, knows her basketball and uh, we talk about her days as a kid in uh, South Bend, Indiana, playing basketball. So we'll have a little bit of basketball conversation with Miles as well. He's a dedicated Bulls fan. All right, Miles, so much to talk about. I'm going to start with your article. Your uh, I don't know if it's your latest article, but one of your more recent ones is a pretty good deep dive. Uh, the U.S. response to COVID-19, big surprise coming, has lavished wealth on the rich in uh, in these times. Talk a little bit about this. Yeah, so I wanted to... Um with this article kind of go into take a broader perspective on what the wholesale response has been, because at this point, you know, the pandemic has been spreading throughout the country. We've had multiple rounds of uh, relief packages, so-called stimulus packages, um, and also many other different uh, efforts the federal government has made to respond to the crisis essentially and you know we've seen how other countries have done it and today we got some uh, really sobering news that only you know adds the broader point that I make in the piece uh, which is that you know in the month of April the U.S. lost over 20 million jobs this is the greatest monthly net loss on record um, the unemployment rate 
it rose from around 4.4%, where it was previously, up to 14.7%. This is uh, the highest rate in history since the Depression, which was uh, 1933. The jobless rate was around 25%. Um, but as I point out in the piece, most experts are predicting that the rate uh, here will eclipse that even and, and go above 30%. Um, and these aren't just figures, obviously. Everybody knows somebody who's directly impacted by this crisis, um, whether they've lost work, whether they've gotten ill. Um, the If that 30% rate uh, is hit, the Columbia University study estimates that'll plunge over 21 million more Americans into poverty as well. So these are really, uh, obviously, as I said, sobering statistics, but it also is going to fundamentally alter our economy. It already has. Um, and it certainly will more. So this is a time when it's not just individuals that are suffering the consequences of the economic shutdown, but over 40% of all small businesses are now on the verge of permanent closure. Uh, state and, and as we see here in Illinois, state and local governments are facing really financial ruin unless they get uh, some support from the federal government, some relief uh, that, that said, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has already recommended that any states facing budget shortfalls should just declare bankruptcy. And, and we know that experts across the board say that if that happened, that would cause a prolonged depression in America. So the reason I wanted to write this piece is because these are, you know, this is a horrific status quo that we are in. Um, but that not, very few of those statistics have anything to do with this virus itself. It has to do with political choices that have been made in response to the spread of the pandemic. So even, you know, forgetting about what could have been done ahead of time to prevent this spread that we've seen uh, take over uh, huge swaths of the country, uh, just thinking about how the government has decided to respond to this crisis, what it amounts to is a wholesale uh, transfer of wealth from the bottom of the economic ladder to the top in American society. And this is, I would argue, you know, the exact wrong approach, but it's just, you know, benefiting uh, the richest people in America. And we know that because uh, a recent study came out uh, from the Institute for Policy Studies that uh, showed that billionaire wealth, so that, you know, billionaires in our society, uh, in our country rather, uh, saw their wealth shoot up by $282 billion. And this was over just 23 days um, during the period in which the country was starting to shelter into lockdown. Um, and in total, that amounts to about a 10% increase in the wealth of billionaires. Uh, now billionaire wealth is even higher than it was last year. So when we talk about the economy taking hit, we should be clear about who is who are the people that are actually suffering the consequences. And of course, they are poor and working people, the people who've lost their jobs, they've lost their income, or they're being forced as essential workers into dangerous conditions and workplaces, while the wealthiest people in the country are seeing their bank accounts swell. For, for just for example, Jeff Bezos, who's the richest person in the world and is on the verge now of becoming the first trillionaire in history, he saw his fortune inflate by $24 billion uh, in the first three months of this year during the time of this pandemic. So he's doing pretty well, but of course, Amazon workers themselves, they're, you know, getting ill. We've seen a number of them have, have died because of the coronavirus in response. They're um, staging 
a series of walkouts and other types of actions to protest this, but their boss is raking in cash. And the economy, while it's uh, the real economy is in free fall, the stock market actually just saw its best month in over 30 years. Um, it, it's hard to, you know, put those two things together at the time when we're uh, seeing the highest monthly loss in jobs in U.S. history, the stock market is also seeing its best month. And what that does is, of course, benefit all the richest people in America who have the most uh, to gain off the stock market. Um, the, at the same time, we've seen at least 9 million Americans booted off of their health care because we have this employer-sponsored health care system, and that figure could soon climb up to $43 million or 43 million people across the country. So these are just laying out some of the landscape of how we have chosen as a country, as a federal government, to respond to it. Even the stimulus bills themselves, uh, I go into some detail in the piece how they have uh, benefited the wealthiest Americans far more. And even the stuff that we got, you know, you got $1,200. I'm sure many listeners have received that. Um, but that, even that program left out millions of people, including undocumented immigrants, uh, even U.S. citizens, just married to non-citizens uh, were left out of it. People have to wait five months for the actual physical checks. Five months. Think about that. You know, so many of us have gotten it already because we, you know, filed taxes, uh, filed our tax returns online. But people have to wait for physical ones. You have to wait for five months. And these are people that need that money uh, now. Some of that has to do with the fact that Trump demanded his name be put on the checks, delayed, you know, the processing of them even more. Uh, but it also speaks to the real callousness at the heart of, of this approach, which has just been to funnel money at the biggest corporations in America. We've seen uh, this program that Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, is overseeing, is sending um, the up to $4 trillion to the largest companies in America. You know, they said originally it was just $500 billion, but that could actually be leveraged uh, by this huge ratio, basically 10 times. So it's going to end up being $4 trillion of our money, essentially of taxpayer money that's all going to flow and bail out these companies. These are companies that also have liquidity. They're, they don't necessarily, you know, they're not on the verge of shutting down. Um, but instead, that's, you know, what we've decided to do. And the Small Business Paytech, uh, Paycheck Protection Program, this has been one of the most hailed elements of the recovery package meant to help out small businesses. Earlier, you know, I gave that stat of 40% of business, small businesses on the verge of closure. Well, how could that be if we're investing all this money into a paycheck protection program? Well, of the original $350 billion that was allocated for small businesses, over $243 million of that ended up going to large corporations and not to small businesses. So who did they go to? Massive chains, luxury hotels, Trump's, some of Trump's biggest donors made out with millions of dollars out of this program. And only 5% of all small businesses were able to access uh, the funds. So it wasn't really a small business protection program because it didn't really benefit them. So these are some examples of the really... Um, absurd way that the U.S. is doing, uh, responding to the crisis by just giving more and more money to uh, the wealthiest Americans and the largest and most powerful corporations. And other countries aren't doing this. You know, they have responded by doing things like requiring companies to maintain their workforces by covering the paychecks of those 
uh, workers over the course of the, uh, the crisis. And even just today, a number of senators, including Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris and Ed Markey, put out a proposal that would provide actual relief for American people, would give $2,000 a month for each American that over the course of this crisis. I think that's, you know, a right-headed move, but of course it's being adamantly opposed by uh, Republicans and by the Trump administration. So this is the real crisis we're facing right now, isn't even necessarily the public health crisis, but the economic crisis. So that's, um, I go into some alternative ways we could respond to this, but that's kind of the basic outline of the, uh, of the piece and why I felt it was important for people to understand that you know, these are political choices that are being made, and we could also be making different ones that would actually help working people and not just uh, rich people. Yeah, and uh, something that popped out uh, when you said that, uh, how uh, small businesses are, are suffering, and these programs that are supposed to, uh, intended to help small businesses are, to a large degree, going to wealthier businesses or wealthier people who don't need it as much. We Today, we've been discussing at great length, the debate that's going on in Illinois, uh, being one one side, you have Sam Toya, who's the head of the Restaurant Association, imploring uh, Pritzker, Governor Pritzker, to open up the state and allow restaurants to go back into business. And on the other side, you have J.B. Pritzker cautioning, saying, you know, we, we need to make sure, first of all, that people are safe, that we're not just going to rush uh, and open up businesses, open up restaurants, and then just see more people uh, getting sick. Uh, I just, I find this, you talk about uh, choices, Miles, and the way this uh, is being politically, uh, is manipulated uh, for politics. Some of the same forces who would be pleading with the government uh, to open up, reopen businesses, who would be supporting the MAGA hat wearing protesters who are uh, out in the streets uh, with their signs vilifying Pritzker, will be resisting efforts that you were just describing that would benefit the smaller businesses that are hurt. So in the name, exactly. in the name of promoting small businesses, they want to open up the economy, which could re- really put the workers of small businesses at risk and the customers of small businesses at risk, but they oppose programs that would help a small business on the uh, on the grounds what that they're socialists. It's it's a very bizarre contradiction. Well, I think a lot of um, you know I haven't done an ethnography on the anti-lockdown protesters, but I think it's quite clear that many of these people are themselves business owners, and understandably they want to you know they're not the people. You don't see meat packers out at these protests pleading to go back to work because the people that are suffering the consequences of, you know, being deemed essential at a time when there's a pandemic uh, are pleading for safety. They're pleading for, you know, proper uh, protection in the workplace and hazard pay and things like that. Those are the things that they're protesting for. What these anti-lockdown protesters by and large are protesting is they think it's tyranny that they had to close their business and they're not able to keep making money from their workers. Now, I do think that it's understandable. We're all like frustrated with this, right? Nobody wants to be stuck inside. We don't. It's not as if the uh, goal of this is to just remain on shut shut down for a long period of time, but because 
the U.S. responded so poorly to the crisis initially. We don't have a testing regime that is able to match the uh, spread of the disease right now. And the federal government has abdicated that responsibility entirely. They've said that they are not going to invest anymore in testing. So that's left it up to states to scramble, states and local governments to scramble to try to come up with testing, contact tracing, all the things that we would need to actually feel comfortable going out um, and reopening the economy. The problem is that I don't think that the Democrats have done enough to really respond to that anger by saying, look, you're right to be upset that you're losing money um, as a worker, even as a business owner uh, right now. And what we need to do is to channel that anger into demanding the very things that will allow these businesses to survive despite the economy being frozen right now. You know, it's not just to reopen because that's going to be an economic nightmare. You know, people aren't going to suddenly start flooding into nail salons and movie theaters when, as the Trump administration itself predicts right now, by June, we could see 3,000 Americans dying every single day because of this virus. Uh, That's an un- intolerable status quo. So people aren't going to feel comfortable doing that. The thing we need to do is create the conditions for these businesses to be able to survive despite the fact that they're shut down right now. And it hasn't, that hasn't been the conversation. It's all been either op- reopen or keep closed, you know? And I think that there's been too much shaming of people for wanting to get out of this status quo. And what we need to do is create the conditions under which people can still survive and live their lives and get a paycheck and, you know, not have to worry about being evicted in three months once this eviction moratorium is up. You know, if we can make people feel safe, there's going to be a lot less frustration around the fact that we are still in this kind of economic coma right now. So that's what I would like to see is people channeling that anger towards demanding these policies that would actually, and these are th- these aren't crazy things. Other countries are doing this, you know, they're, they're providing the conditions under which businesses can keep their workers employed, perhaps furlough them for a period, but then the government is subsidizing those paychecks so that once they, so that they're made whole. And then once the economy is able to reopen, once we have these testing regimes in place, um, then they can just continue on with business, you know, and that's why other countries aren't seeing 40% of small businesses closing. You know, it's uh, unique to the U.S. because of how poorly uh, the response has been carried out. All right. Now let's uh, broaden this to talk about the political end of this. Uh, You were mentioning that there's political choices that the leaders of this country have made, and those political choices, by and large, have favored the well-to-do over everybody else. It's a choice that they had. They uh, They could have been more equitable, in the programs they came up with, but effectively allowed uh, wealthy companies to benefit from programs intended to help uh, middle class, poor, working class, what have you. And as a result, there's even more social inequity. Do you have any hope uh, that if the Democrats seize control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, well, they already have the House, so if they hold the House, get the Senate, and take the White House, do you have any hope that different choices will be made. See, at the moment, the Democrats could argue they're doing the best they can, but they have limited power. They only have the House. So they have to just get some programs that benefit the Bens and the Miles and the Dennis's of the world. They have to agree uh, to have uh, 
loopholes in there that uh, helped the Jeff Bezoses of the world, okay? Do you have any hope that if the Democrats mm-hmm. take control, we'll see a reversal of this and we'll see programs that uh, actually help more the Ben, the Miles, and the Dennises of the world? Well, yeah. I mean, of course, I think that there would be much more opportunity to enact progressive policies under under a Democratic administration and under a Democratic Senate. I mean, I think Mitch McConnell himself is the biggest obstacle to a just response. I don't even think it's Trump and Pence. It's really, you know, McConnell is refusing to bring any of these bills to the floor. What I do think is we can't wait for that. We're, you know, the election is in November. The next president's not going to be, and Congress isn't going to be seated until January. We're in this crisis now. Uh, so we can't just hold out for that. I think that those would be better conditions, but we need to think about the political terrain we're in at this moment. And to me, that means, look, we're, we're going to, I know McConnell and these, uh, you know, Republicans have said that they're, for one thing, they think the deficit is going crazy. They never said that when they were passing their $2 trillion tax cut uh, back in 2017. But now they're saying they're worried about the deficit. And they're saying they just don't have the appetite for more spending. Well, if these, if the trends continue, and there's every reason to predict they will because there's not been the efforts made to mitigate the economic devastation that's happening. Um, it's not going to be a pretty economic picture. You know, in uh, in November, in the next uh, coming months, we will be in a depression. And so I think, therefore, the leverage is still with the Democrats and the Democratic House needs to take that and say, look, we're going to propose an omnibus relief bill. None of this corporate welfare, none of this, uh, you know, handouts to the richest Americans, uh, none of the deregulation, which is another thing Republicans are pushing, is to even further deregulate the financial industry uh, at this time. Just say none of that. And Nancy Pelosi put forward a bill, say, we're going to work from the House bill. The last time they did this, the $2 trillion stimulus, they worked from Mitch McConnell's Senate bill. And then the Democrats tried to, like, tweak it around the edges. You know, we got this heightened unemployment insurance, which was a positive thing, although it did incentivize companies to lay off their workers rather than keeping them, which I think is bad. Um, but regardless, we worked from the Republican point of view. So that's why it was a corporate bailout. What Nancy Pelosi should do is say, look, we're going to send a bill to the Senate. We're going to vote on it in the House, pass it out of the House, use, you know, actually whip her caucus, including moderate Democrats to support things like that $2,000 payout support, you know, getting a program to keep uh, uh, companies' uh, paychecks fulfilled during the course of this crisis, and also do things like, look, we could massively expand the post office right now. The Republicans are trying to attack the post office. Uh, Trump calls it a joke. It's the most popular federal agency in the country. And uh, we're going to need vote by mail. People are not going to feel comfortable going out and voting. So we, we're going to need uh, the infrastructure for something like that. Also, we could, there's, this is, to me, this is not a time to think about reopening the economy. It's a time to think about reimagining the economy. Like, what do we want to come out of this with our economy looking like? Because it's going to look different. And it could either look even more stratified and, you know, run by monopolies and the most powerful corporations, or it could be more democratic and we could have more public infrastructure like the post office, which is a federally run agency. They could provide things like public banking. You know, that's one thing that, 
would help massive amounts of people who are currently unbanked. That's what the U- USPS did from 1911 to 1967. And actually, Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez have put forward a bill to do just that, to make uh, uh, post offices uh, provide banking as well. There was also during World War One, the post office actually teamed up with the Department of Agriculture and they instituted this farm to table program that helped to distribute produce and other food across the country. We have people waiting hours in food bank lines right now because they can't get fed. We also are going to need a whole new um, array of workers to do contact tracing. I think we could have a federal jobs program to provide all those 20 million newly employed people, um, actually over 30 total, um, jobs and provide and hire them to be contact tracers. The same way that the census hires people to be enum- enumerators to like go door to door and check on people to see who's living where and what have you. We could have people hired to just call people and say, you know, you were tested positive for the virus. Who did you see? This is what's happening in other countries, and it's actually happening here already too. Public health officials have already done this, but it's at a tiny rate right now. We could provide that. So all of those things, I think, are possible if the Democrats push them forward right now and say, hey, Mitch McConnell, Republicans, are you going to vote against relief? Are you going to hold up this package right now? And if you are, like you're holding hostage, that's the leverage. That's where it's at right now. I, I agree with you that it would be much better if we had Democrats in all these different levels of power. But because we don't right now, we need to work with or with the system we have. All right. And to move forward, uh, all those ideas that you articulated, particularly that banking in the post office, which is a great idea. And by the way, I just want to say this about the post office. Uh, having used to work, uh, having once worked at the post office, big fan of the post office on many fronts. Many members of my family have worked at the post office. Uh, it's far more popular in rural areas and uh, red areas than people realize. So Donald Trump is trying to situate it as a blue versus red, a Democrat versus uh, Republican. He's trying to position it in the narrative that he has uh, been able to exploit uh, to get elected and to hold on to power. Uh, but in reality, uh, in the MAGA hat country, parts of this country, the post office is pretty popular. So that may not be an issue he wants to push too hard, uh, destroying the post office. Because I do not see uh, Federal Express or UPS or any of these private companies uh, offering a price structure in which all... Uh, may, all of their deliveries will have the same price, regardless of how far removed they are from central locations. They usually will charge you more money to go to a rural area, whereas the post office, it's one stamp. All the stamps are the same price. So just th- a little bit of U.S. post office socialism is pretty popular in MAGA hat country. You won't hear that from Donald Trump at any time, but uh, that's reality. All right, I'm going to move forward to... Uh, the election. I'm listening to you and talking about these great ideas. Like, and is there any way in the world that President Joe Biden, if that were the case, would push for these? And right now, looking at his past, I would have to say, be honest, no. Okay, he's a centrist. He's a Bill Clinton, Barack Obama centrist. So he's not going to be pushing hard for these. Uh, on the other hand. And I'm always looking for a shred of hope. Do you think there's a vice president uh, that uh, a running mate he could have that you would have confidence would push him toward the left, toward these uh, 
socialistic ideas? Well, of course. I, I mean, my major, I think much, I think having somebody in power is uh, an incredibly important part of enacting this type of a bold redistributive agenda. Um, but that has much, for one thing, I think that has a lot to do with just the staffing of an administration itself. Um, so who's picking out, you know, the cabinet members, the staff members, the personnel, all of these things are instrumental. And right now, I mean, last time I was on, we talked about Larry Summers and how problematic it was that this architect of neoliberalism is uh, uh, advising Joe Biden. I think there's plenty of red flags in terms of who is in Joe Biden's orbit. That said, there are some people who are not as much a red flag. Jared Bernstein, uh, Ted Kaufman, and other people that have been, um, you know, on the more progressive side of the economic spectrum. Um, having a vice president who is powerful is important. Dick Cheney was an incredibly empower- powerful vice president. I wouldn't have called Joe Biden a very powerful vice president. And I don't know if his vice president would be very powerful. That has to do with the dynamics of an administration. Um, that said, I think of the people that are supposedly on the short list right now, so just, you know, going from what has been reported, are um, uh, Elizabeth Warren, um, Kamala Harris, and A.B. Klobuchar. Those are the three names that keep coming up. Uh, Stacey Abrams sometimes as well, but it seems less, less that seems less likely. Um, of those options, I of course think Elizabeth Warren has been the biggest champion of uh, progressive policy and of financial regulation and of you know fighting against the monopolization of our economy. That said, she has a very different approach to politics than I think is what. Uh, the U.S. needs right now. I'm, it's not even necessarily a dig on her, but she's always been an inside the game kind of person. Her whole approach has been uh, get me, a, get in the seat at table, get a seat at the table of power, and help to influence policy, rather than help to incite, you know, forces outside of the halls of power, protest movements, labor organizing, militancy, those kinds of things, and from the outside pressure. Uh, to uh, people all, at all levels of government, people in power, to enact more progressive uh, measures. And that's kind of the movement-oriented uh, approach to power. I think that's going to be necessary regardless of who is vice president, honestly, regardless of who is president. Even if, you know, Trump wins again, God forbid, like, we're going to need people. Uh, obviously, we can't congregate right now in the way that we normally do. Although yesterday, uh, we saw this uh, really cool action called the Road to Recovery, which was, you know, all these uh, progressive activists in Illinois circling the Thompson Center in their cars, calling for this you know, right to recovery plan that United Working Families and other groups have put out that is like an actual, that falls in line with the kind of things I've been laying out of helping working people versus uh Corporations, we can, we, we will see more congregating or at least more activism, I predict, as the economy continues to deteriorate and people are left in more desperate situations. And that's when we've seen progressive change always, you know, is when in the Depression or, you know, during period, during wartime periods where people are really facing uh, hardship. So, yeah, to answer your question, I do think the best person of that that's is being seriously considered right now would, of course, be Warren. But regardless of who is chosen as the VP pick, uh, they're still a nominee for one. They got to win. But also, we're going to need people organizing outside the halls of power, regardless. 
uh, you're you're sounding like your colleague and friend Micah when you uh, when you, you I don't know if you know that but you're going on a Micah like rift. Uh, it's not about the individual; it's about the movement. And uh, I think both of you are onto something there. I uh, spent the entire summer fighting off the Kamala Kool Aid and was uh, maligned and made fun of by many of my listeners because I really <laughs> really liked Kamala Harris uh, at various moments of the campaign and. Uh, and uh, she's my, I guess of the three, I would pick her. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Elizabeth Warren, uh, but I do believe that it should be a black woman. And uh, Kamala Harris uh, showed me her ability to counterpunch. And the fact that you just mentioned that she attacked team with Bernie on that other bill uh, is is a hopeful sign. So I um, know that's plenty. plenty of- I think that's positive, that her signing on to that. And, you know, she was one of the original, not original, but when all these senators jumped on board Bernie's Medicare for All bill, um, right as the uh, Democratic primary was starting out, she was on board with it. Of course, her you know position changed as the primary went on and she tried to distinguish herself. She watered it down, but she has at least made some overtures to the Medicare for All yeah. crowd. So, you know, got to give Harris some, you know, love for that. All right, let's uh, shift to, uh, we'll have plenty of conversation down the road about uh, who Joe Biden takes as his vice president, presuming, of course, he's the nominee. I uh, sort of entertained the fantasy for a while. Everybody made fun of me that uh, the Democrats would replace him with somebody else. Uh, I'm slowly warming up to the fact that he's going to be the nominee. He's taking me a long time, uh, Miles, probably a lot longer than many Bernie supporters. Uh, All right. Uh, since the last time we talked, uh, Tara Reid has gone public. She's been on TV uh, with her accusations against Joe Biden. I have my very strong feelings about all this. And I, I always mention, I feel compelled to mention, not only is Joe Biden the recipient of an allegation from Tara Reid in this case of sexual assault, I do not want anybody to forget that Donald John Trump, the sitting president of the United States, the leader of the Republican Party, has been accused of rape uh, by E. Jean Carroll. Folks, it's only, it's with so many of my uh, Democratic brothers and sisters, it's only a one-way street. They only want to talk about Tara Reid, and for some crazy reason, they don't want to talk about uh, E. Jean Carroll. So I always throw that out there. Uh, but uh, So I'll throw this to you. Miles, you've had an opportunity to absorb... Uh, the accusation and uh, her story. What's your take on all this? Well, I don't, uh, I of course think that the principles of how uh, legally, I mean, any sexual assault allegation uh, should be treated is that we should provide all the information and seriously uh, investigate whether, you know, the, the, the details of the, incident in question and I don't think that that was done by honestly by the by the media certainly not um, it's too late for the, the, the courts to do it I mean she apparently filed this Senate complaint when uh, when it happened they cannot find it or you know it's, it, it's been difficult to um, get all the information on that all that said uh, regardless of whether you believe the accusation in question um, I think that it is incumbent upon people who say that, you know, that they stand with uh, women, with accusers, with uh, sexual assault uh, victims, that we treat each case equally. And what we've unfortunately seen is the same people that 
Dean Blasey Ford when she made her um, very brave uh, allegations against Brett Kavanaugh during the Supreme Court hearings. Um, some of those same people turning around and, and calling Tara Reid, you know, uh, Russian plant of saying that she's, you know, she's just trying to get Joe Biden uh, out of the race. I mean, she did say that she, she, she thinks that he should step down. Um, I don't have any more information than anybody else does, so I cannot, you know, give judgment on whether or not this was, uh, that it happened the way that she described it. Obviously, there's been some evidence that backs up her claim. There's the tape of her mother calling into Larry King. There's her, you know, neighbor at the time now going on record saying that she, uh, that Tara Reid did tell her about it when it happened. Um, so I, I, I think that because it still is ultimately, he said, she said, it comes down to the same type of dynamic that was there in the, in the Blasey Ford and Kavanaugh, um, debate. And I, it really upsets me to see some of these same people now going back and deleting tweets and, you know, covering up the type of things that they said when they were calling out Kavanaugh and standing with Blasey Ford and now turning around and, and doing that. I think we should. That does read like hypocrisy to me, and I don't think that that's an appropriate way to treat these questions because then it just becomes about politics and, you know, who do you, who do you really want to win and, and you lose the kind of moral standing. So um, for, for me, that's my general uh, take on it. I don't know. Uh, I think that what you said is just as important as well, that Donald Trump should be held accountable. Um, but holding people to account means having some basic standard that you apply to all cases. And so I would want to, I, I would want to see that done. I think that the media has not done enough work, honestly. I think that they avoided the story for a long time and it just kept on continuing to be relevant and be in, you know, be brought up by more and more people. And that's why now you're starting to see it being discussed on major networks. But had that happened earlier before, maybe they would have found some evidence that said that, you know, that cleared Joe Biden. I don't know, but that just wasn't done. So now is when the, that conversation is, is happening. Uh, but I think Democrats should call out Trump for being a sexist nonstop. I mean, he's not only has he bragged about grabbing women, uh, he's just treated women like objects throughout his entire public life and career. And that is not the kind of person I think we want leading the country. And I think that that's a fine case to make and to talk about the fact that he has faced sexual assault allegations. What I worry about is you know what happened in 2016 we, when at the same time that the Access Hollywood tapes came out, then there was a Democratic debate and Trump brought all of Bill Clinton's accusers and had them sit in the crowd. You know, we don't want to see another repeat of that where Tara Reid is now, you know, I mean, I don't know what the debates will look like under these conditions, but you don't want to lose that, you know, kind of uh, leverage in a way that you have when you say like, hey, we are Democrats, we stand with women when you dismiss the allegations of somebody like Tara Reid. So I think it should be treated more seriously than it's been being treated by at least many people in kind of the Democratic establishment right now. Well, my position is uh, un is not changed at all. I feel that uh, a any of these elected officials in which there's a, you think there's a credible case to be made that they uh, sexually assaulted someone or in the case of Trump raped somebody allegedly should be required to step down. And so I stand by this. Joe Biden should step down as the nominee the, of this democratic party. 
Donald Trump should step down as president of the United States. Brett Kavanaugh should leave the Supreme Court, and Clarence Thomas should leave the Supreme Court. And then whoever the Dem- uh, then De- I guess Elizabeth Warren will be selected to replace uh, Joe Biden, and she'll run against Mike Pence. And the winner of that election gets to fill those vacancies as Supreme Court. It's the most logical solution to this problem. It re- it forces Democrats and Republicans. Uh, to pay a price, whatever I say to people, oh, Ben, get serious, man. I'm like, I am serious. <laughs> I am serious. If you're going to have standards, have standards. You have a alleged rapist in the White House, and you have the Democratic nominee has been alleged with sexual assault. It's going to come down to that. Just think about that, Miles. That will be your choice in November. Well, you can vote for the Democrat who's been accused of sexual assault or the Republican who's accused of rape and about 23 other things, I might add, just that... All right, let's move on. Let's. It's not a, a ballot I'm looking forward to. No. <laughs> and for the record, I just want to say this right now. Neither Miles nor I voted for Joe Biden in the last primary. And I don't believe Dr. D uh, did either, although he keeps it kind of secret who he votes for. Um, all right, uh, let's close with a little on a lighter note. Uh, people don't know this. Uh, Miles is a passionate Bulls fan. And uh, he's got a picture of himself with Benny the Bull, the Bull's mascot. I didn't realize that until the the image uh, popped up on the screen. I'm like, Miles, is that you with Benny the Bull? And um, so you must be just really enjoying uh, The Last Dance immensely, the ESPN documentary about uh, our beloved Bulls during the Michael Jordan years. Yeah, a little escape from our current you know, dystopia here in uh, 2020 when you take a little step back into the late 90s. Things are a little, you know, a little easier going then. Uh, I had a uh, basketball card collection going, which I've recently uh, excavated from the tombs. And I'm wondering whether I actually, any of these old Jordan cards are going to be worth anything now that we've got this 90s nostalgia going. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's for one thing, it's something to look forward to uh, each week because we don't have much in the way of sports. So, uh, to, you know, they're going to bring Korean baseball to America, it sounds like. So that's going to be the one uh, outlet well, sports fans will have. But yeah, I mean, it's a, a fascinating look at a period. You know, this is considered one of the greatest sports teams uh, in history. This is probably the biggest sports star ever in, you know, in world history and Michael Jordan and somebody who really has been oddly out of the limelight. I mean, that's one thing that keeps coming up to me is just thinking, wow, these are stories that are being told now that maybe were in books and, you know, you probably know about, know about them then, but like most, because there was no social media, media, sports journalism itself was a lot different, looked a lot different than, um, it, it, there was not the same level of scrutiny. I mean, Michael Jordan was scrutinized, of course, during his career, but not in the same way that sports stars are now. You know, he was able to kind of keep himself and has been up until now. You know, not that he, he's doing interviews nonstop, but this documentary itself is the closest look into kind of his personality. That said, of course, his camp was involved in the creating of it, so I don't think it's you know it's not a critical look necessarily, but at least. <laughs> some uh, perspective on how this team, you know, was able to manage all the pressure of being the, you know, biggest uh, team in the world and coming back. I mean, they haven't even gone into 
um, the story about his father and that tragedy yet and kind of his move into baseball. They did touch on the gambling a little bit in, in recent episodes, but um, I'm wondering if somebody, cause you know, I was a kid then I'm either 34 now. So, I mean, I was, I was, I was young when uh, the 98 season was happening, but as somebody who was around and paying attention to it, how, how closely does the documentary stack up with what you were reading about the bulls at that, uh, at that time? Does it, does it, does it seem, are you, have you been surprised yet? Uh, no. Okay. I tell you this, you're speaking to a guy who's utterly obsessed with basketball uh, in general and uh, with a, particular obsession with the Chicago Bulls. I passionately follow the Bulls, even to this day. As you know, Joe Colley comes on the show at least once a month. We do a deep dive. Even as, as wretched as the Bulls are, I still find time to talk about the current Bulls, okay? So there's nothing new in this documentary. I can tell you that, folks. Every single thing that they discussed about, the fights with Jerry Krause, uh, the, the Jordan's accusation about the cocaine, uh, you know, he that's an old, these are old stories. But... I don't care that they're not new. Just the way they're packaging it together, I'm just enjoying watching it again. So there's really nothing new here. The, the, the essential point is, though, the uh, analysis that's applied to it or lack thereof. And as I tell everybody, uh, this is not really a documentary about Michael Jordan. It's a, like a, a shrine to Michael Jordan. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. Uh, Stacy Davis Gates and I were laughing about this when we were doing the interview because for all his inconsistencies and for all his, uh, his, you know, he's clearly a capitalist and it's all about Michael making money. He is the greatest basketball player of definitely, I, I think of all time. And he brought six championships to my beloved city of Chicago, which has never had anything remotely resembling that kind of success brought so much joy to so many people i'm willing to put up with his foibles you know what i'm saying he's not nobody's perfect miles and i'm willing to look, i'm willing to look the other way in a lot of michael's imperfections because i will always appreciate that he was doing that for a chicago team and you know the movie leaves out miles i could go on and on about this that those 90s were a wrenching time in the city of Chicago. You talk about the kind of economic analysis you do all the time and in these times. Chicago was really going through all that as it was changing. Was uh, Industries left and we were transforming into the city that we are now, very uh, white-collar type town. And um, that was also the, uh, the beginning of uh, sort of the gentrification process that we've seen, tearing down high-rise, moving black people out of the city of Chicago, just being unable or unwilling to deal with the murder in the city of Chicago. All this was going on while Michael Jordan and the Bulls, that was the backdrop in Chicago when Michael Jeffrey Jordan and the Bulls are winning these championships. They don't even discuss that in the movie at all. But the reality was that Michael was like a reprieve to all that. You know what I'm saying? It was like a way to avoid. Uh, so I appreciate to some degree the fact that they gave us a distraction. Um, so I guess, Miles, uh, I am guilty of being too much in love with Michael Jordan for all the wrong reasons because he was such a great basketball player. But you know what? Stacey Davis Gates shares that feeling with me, so I'm not alone. Well, I mean, to say what you will, I agree. I mean, I think that 
there are so many, you know, you, and you've talked to Craig Hodges, who is a former teammate of Jordan. Um, there's plenty of reasons to be very critical of how and what Jordan could have done in terms of stepping up and, uh, you know, backing certain players and things. But at least he didn't go full Kanye. You know, he didn't, like, throw on a MAGA hat or anything, and he still hasn't, you know. So <laughs> we have, you know, there's some standards. I actually did an interview with a, uh, uh, somebody named Sean Dinses, uh, a couple years back he wrote a book called bulls markets uh, and it's all about kind of the 90s bulls and uh, the business of the bulls and specifically the united center focuses a lot on how the building of the united center really changed the dynamic in that um in the neighborhood uh, the near west side and like they made all these changes when they were, were setting up the united center but mainly they wanted to really put uh, uh they wanted to raise ticket sales. They wanted to have a kind of fine dining inside so that they really put all this into concession stands, all this effort. And because of that, they kicked out all the street vendors. And it used to be at the old Chicago Stadium, you probably remember, they were, you know, peanut salesmen. The way you go to a baseball game, you know, you have vendors outside. They strictly keep everybody outside and like decimated these local businesses because of it and then changed the demographic of the kind of people that were going to Bulls games. And back in the day, of course, the tickets were cheaper. It was way more kind of a blue collar experience the city itself as you said had a different kind of makeup demographic whereas now it's you know it's much harder to afford uh, even going to a, see a shitty bulls team you know can you imagine how much tickets would be if, uh, if we were winning championships again so i think a, a lot of that larger socioeconomic context has has been left out but maybe we're the nerds that would be more interested in that stuff anyway yeah i know i know sean dinses very well bulls market yes i know it very well uh and i gotta tell you we'll we'll soon have an opportunity uh, to see what the impact of a successful Bulls championship team will be on ticket prices, Miles, because I am utterly confident. We'll close this interview with this burst of optimism. I am utterly confident with that, that with this new regime running my beloved Chicago Bulls, it will only be a year or two before you, me, and Dennis will be gathering in Grant Park in at the end of June to celebrate a Bulls championship. Remember that prediction, all right? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Miles Conflassen uh, from In These Times. You can check out his stories in These Times. And the last one he wrote is brilliant. I really, uh, two thumbs way up for it. Yeah, there's something wrong right now in our country. On top of everything else, that we somehow or other uh, perpetuate social inequities when we're tr coming up with relief packages uh, designed to help the neediest. Uh, Miles, thank yeah. you so much for being a guest on the show, and thank you very much for all the good work that you do. You take care. All right, Miles? Thanks. Uh, thanks to you, and thanks to Dennis. I'll uh, see you both real soon. Stay safe. Very good. Miles Conflesson from In These Times. That's another bonus show. Take care, everybody.